If you would, please take out your Bibles and join me in turning to Psalm chapter 28. Psalm chapter 28. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for giving it to Your people, preserving it, and enabling us to have it before us. And yet, Father, we also give thanks for Your Holy Spirit that not only inspired this Word, but illuminates this Word so that we could have understanding and that we could put it into practice. Now let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're resuming our summer psalm series, seeing all of life as worship through the psalms. Uh, Today in particular, and maybe a little bit next week, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time kind of re-familiarizing ourselves with the Psalms. Uh, In particular, we're going to review how and why the Psalms do occupy, or at least should occupy, an important place in both the corporate worship of the church and in the all-of-life worship of the Christian. Now these Psalms, these songs, are 150 chapters, as it were, individual songs that have been gathered together for God's people, divided uh, uh, into five books, many think, to to mirror the five books of Moses. Uh, These 150 psalms are at once familiar. Think of Psalm 100, think of Psalm 23, and yet foreign. They're written over a period of 1,200 years, from 15th century to the 3rd century B.C., And they are a collection of songs and psalms offered to God by Israel, His people. It's rightly been understood that this is a hymn book for God's people. It is a prayer book for the church. Martin Luther, the German reformer, referred to the psalms as a little Bible or the Bible in miniature, sort of being sort of at the center of the Bible, it really is a crossroads where you can get to and from everywhere through the Psalms. The Psalms are diverse. All 150 are different, and yet they're unified by being centered on the one true and living God. And every one of them expresses that mysterious yet real encounter between the divine and the human. As I mentioned in our preparing for worship email, the Psalms are poetry, and because they are poetry, they force us to slow down and think, and in doing so, they inform our intellect, they arouse our emotions, they direct our wills, and they they stimulate our imaginations. And when we read the Psalms with faith, we come away not just informed, not just with more knowledge, But as God's Spirit works in us through His Word, we become transformed. We're not the same people we were before we read the psalm, before we meditated on the psalm. We memorized it. Now the psalms and worship, the the church doesn't need exclusive 
psalmody. In other words, only singing psalms. But my, most certainly we need inclusive psalmody. We need to sing the psalms. And uh, Rob did a, did a good introduction of it's not too often that we get to sort of sing the text. Um, the psalms lend themselves to that. And we'll do that um, as often as we can as we work our way through the psalms. But every week we often are singing one of the psalms put to music. Now, the psalms serve to promote true worship. Worship that is biblically grounded and guided, God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-enabled, as we saw in a study a few years ago from John chapter 4. Indeed, you will see more and more that here in the gathered church, the psalms help us worship. But in the scattered church, when you're at work and at home, the Psalms help take your eyes off of you and your circumstances and put them on the Lord in worship. Now here we are on the Lord's Day, the first day of this new week. And I want to ask a few questions. Is your tank on empty? Not your gas tank in the vehicle that got you here, but is your spiritual tank is it in the red right now well here through worship through the word we refuel are you lost are, yes you're here but are your is your mind is your heart as it were in the wilderness well through worship we return are are you scattered are you multitasking all the time, and not just with two or three tasks, but with seemingly dozens. Worship helps us refocus. You see, worship changes us from who we were to, what we, to who we are becoming, and one day we will fully be. You see, corporate worship on the Lord's day reorients us and realigns us. Now, what do I mean? Worship as reorientation. In the case of false gods. It's the move from being an unbeliever to a believer. As we read in Thessalonians that the people turned from idols to serve the true and the living God. But worship is not only reorientation away from false gods. But worship serves to be realignment in the case of false worship of the true God. This is in particular helpful for the growing and maturing believer. Now the Psalms are a precious treasure for the church. But why? Why do we turn to the Psalms? I think it's because we all realize that while the whole world is full of injustice and suffering, just as we sang, God is our refuge. He's our strength. The Psalms in particular help us to express what we are thinking and feeling. Um, before the expression, be real, get real, uh, authenticity came into our vocabulary. That's what the Psalms were helping us be. Now in his introduction to his commentary on the Psalms, John Calvin wrote some fantastic words. Now, this is a long quote, and I hereby promise to not do long quotes that often, but this is worth it, and I'll summarize it. And I was told once, don't read a quote, 
preach a quote. So I want us to hear as we get going in the Psalms what Calvin has to say. I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the mind of men are wont to be agitated. Genuine and earnest prayer proceeds first and foremost from a sense of our need and next from faith in the promises of God. It is by perusing these inspired compositions that men will most, will most effectually be awakened to a sense of their maladies and at the same time instructing in seeking remedies for their cure. In a word, whatever may serve to encourage us when we are about to pray to God is taught in this book. And so here you hear, you, you hear Calvin saying, you know, this book is going to greatly aid us in praying to God. But he continues, There is no other book in which there is recorded so many deliverances, nor one in which the evidences and experiences of the fatherly providence and solicitude which God exercises toward us are celebrated with such splendor of diction. There is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God. So in other words, not only do the Psalms help us pray, the Psalms help us praise God. And we will see that in particular in Psalm 28. The Psalms as an anatomy of the soul open us up to see what's on the inside. It gives us a language to express. And we might as well say that the Psalms are then like medicine for the soul that can close us up that can heal us. Now Psalm 28 is a psalm of lament. It serves to lay a troubled situation before the Lord and ask for help. Of the 150 psalms, almost a third, almost 50 could rightly be characterized as psalms of lament. And I hope you were able to read the article which asks a great question, what can miserable Christians sing? What's the answer? The Psalms, right. What, to use the words of Calvin, can grieving, sorrowful, fearful, doubting, confused Christians sing? The Psalms. Absolutely right. Because this is life in a sinful and fallen world. It's not all ease and happiness. There is joy and peace in believing. But it's a fight to the finish. Psalm 28 is a psalm of David. We don't know the historical situation. And so that helps us map it onto our very lives all the more easily. Now let's begin to get into Psalm 28. And I want to begin with a question. When you find yourself in difficulty, in trouble, where do you turn? When you find yourself at tr in trouble, who do you call? 
Who do you call? Now, I grew up in a day and age before voicemail. I grew up before the answering machine. I grew up before call forwarding. You know how telephone calls worked, kids, back then? You made the call, and it rang. And it rang, and it rang, and it rang until someone answered. You guys have all been in the situation, at least the older ones, right? You're, you're fumbling with your keys, getting in the house, because what? The phone is ringing, and if you don't get to it, and if the person decides to hang up, there's no call. There's no connection. There's no voicemail. There's no answering machine. You stayed on the line until someone picked up. It rang and rang and rang. So assuming that you do make the call, do you hang up too soon? Do you give up? Do you think that the person on the other end is not going to answer the phone? They're not home. And you hang up. We've all run into the house picked up the phone, and as we pick it up, what do we hear? Click. Just a second or two earlier, the connection would have been made. Well, join me now as I read Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest, if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my, up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work according, and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hands, He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to Him. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Now in our psalm, we have another pattern of prayer, another model prayer for us to use, another example of prayer in which David, the psalmist, does three things. And if you look at the outline on page six, I've made a change to the outline. In prayer, David gets God's attention, makes his request and receives God's assurance. Again, in prayer, we'll see David gets God's attention, he makes his request, and he receives God's assurance. 
So in the first two verses, we see that David gets God's attention with a plea for mercy. Well, what is his situation? Well, we don't know the details, but it seems clear that he's afraid. And his dread is not so much death in general, but death with unmerited disgrace. He has a fear of being reckoned with the wicked and cast away, being thrown into the pit. So what does he do? What action does David take? He, he calls on the Lord. And if you turn back to Psalm 18, to Psalm 18, you'll see where in my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. And there's an echo there. In other words, David did this frequently, often. He found in situations where he takes action by calling on the Lord. He, he begs the Lord to hear him. He says, Lord, don't be deaf. Don't be silent. That, someone who is deaf and then can't speak is, is, is mute. And that's the description that the prophets, especially Isaiah, give of idols. They can't hear. They can't speak. They can't do you any good. He pleads for mercy. He cries for help. David is not calm. He is not collected. He's desperate. He's desperate for God to hear him and to speak. And for God to not hear him. For God to, as it were, be deaf. And for God to, to, to not speak, to be silent. That's more than David could bear. It's a fate greater than death. Jesus in his ministry quoted Deuteronomy. Which says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. David realizes that if he doesn't... God doesn't hear and speak. He cannot live. We read in John 6 of, of Jesus asking Peter, well, do you want to leave also? Do you want to stop following me? And Peter, for once, has a great answer. Uh, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. You've got to speak. Even in this time of desperation, we, we see confidence. David is confident and there's a basis for his appeal. And we see two anchors. First, he refers to God as my rock. My rock. And there's an, a passive aspect of being a rock. There's strength and per, permanence and, and stability. We, we sang about God being our rock, our sure defense, our fortress. But also, if you look at Exodus 17 and the rock that was struck that gives living water, there's an active rock as well that is the source of life-giving water. And then we see David in his plea, in his prayer, he lifts up his hands toward the most holy sanctuary. The most holy place, the innermost place in God's tabernacle, later the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It's the place where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the day of atonement by the, holy, the high priest. It's 
this inmost shrine. He's, he's looking in that direction. It's the idea of David's prayer is going to penetrate right into the very presence of the Lord God Himself. He's telling God that He's coming to Him on the basis of shed blood as being a sinner who knows that his sin must be atoned for before he can approach the Almighty God. We heard last year in one of the Psalms, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? David recognized that. He knows that. So here, he's getting God's attention really with just one plea. God have mercy. God have mercy. My former pastor Robert Letham once said, if you can find a better prayer than God have mercy, pray it. I'm pretty sure, although I didn't do an extensive study from Genesis to Revelation, but I'm pretty sure that every time someone says to the Lord, have mercy on me, they receive mercy. For one reason, the only somebody whose heart has changed, like the man on the road who said, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, only someone who recognizes that there's the source of mercy is going to pray that prayer. So let me ask all of us, when was the last time you begged for mercy from God? You think that's beneath you? Here's King David, a man after God's own heart, desperate and pleading for God to listen, for God to speak. In other words, for God to have mercy on him. When was the last time you asked God for mercy? So after asking God for attention, the psalmist puts before the Lord his request. He makes his request for justice known, and we see that in verses 3 through 5. Now a few general comments. This is a prayer of imprecation. It's praying for God's justice and judgment upon God's enemies. Now many of the psalms of lament include this kind of prayer, um, when we were last in Acts, or maybe a week or two before that, where the apostles said, Lord, look upon their threats and give us boldness. Look upon their threats. Lord, take notice of what they're doing and deal with them appropriately. It's the Psalms' center of gravity. You're going to see here a dispassionate portrayal of the evil of the human heart and a passionate plea for God to act justly. God is a God of mercy, yes. God is also, and thankfully so, God is a God of justice as well. Did you notice when we read that three times in verse 4, three times David prays that the Lord would repay the wicked according to what they've done. He's pleading not so much his own calls. He's not looking for vengeance. He's not looking for... A revenge. He, he's, he, he's asking for God to deal appropriately with what they have done. Now although 
One commentator says, The wicked may give themselves loose reins in the commission of every species of vice with impunity for a time. They must at length stand before the judgment seat of God. And, and, and David in his prayer is reminding God of this. He's reminding himself of that. Now I want to spend a moment or two looking at the works of the wicked. The wicked here are not simply people who sin but those who oppose God and His people, in particular with deceit and treachery. You see, evil is in their hearts, we read. And there's falsehood. There's a hypocritical smile and a scheme. They're doing the work of Satan, the great destroyer and the great liar, the father of lies. You remember when we went through Mark's Gospel, we heard Jesus say, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. David, and Jesus is quoting Isaiah, David is saying the same thing. These people are treating me on the outside pleasantly, with peace, but their hearts are actually full of evil, and at the right time, they will have no problem doing away with David or any of God's people. So the works of the wicked. But in there, you'll notice also the works of the Lord. The works of the Lord. And in our Psalms thus far, and in our call to worship, you heard about us giving thanks and praise to God for what? His works, His deeds. In particular, as our confession says, His works of creation. His works of providence but also we see the work of God in tearing down and not building up at the end of five now these wicked are in some ways like the practical atheist and the fool that we saw before who says there is no God and so they should have no basis on which to complain since they didn't think that God built the world, then they should have no reason to complain when He tears their world down around them. David is asking for justice. Are you asking for justice? Are you like the widow who keeps coming to the judge asking for God to deal justly? You see, we all recognize that injustice stings, doesn't it? And so this prayer for God to render justice really is a healthy prayer. It helps remind us that there is a moral order to the world. And that a day of judgment, everybody recognizes, is necessary. Is necessary. And notice, as David prays, there is not a spirit of revenge or hatred. He's praying that God would make His justice known. So after he has finished making his request, the psalmist lets us know that he has received assurance that God has heard his prayer and that God is answering or will answer his prayer. So in these last four verses, verses 6 through 9, we see where David receives God's assurance that he's been heard. Now, 
Somewhere between verse 5 and 6, there's a turn and there's a pivot from the request to the answer. But yet the text does not let us know how. We've seen that earlier. David complains, David prays, and he receives the answer and he praises. It's a familiar pattern. We don't see how, but what we do see is yes. There was a pivot. There was a turn. And what does David turn to? Praise and thanksgiving. David, his heart has been retuned, as it were, to sing God's praise. It's it's like the first verse of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to what? To sing Thy grace, streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Look at the end of verse 7. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to Him. Indeed, God's provision of mercy results in a song of praise. But as we continue into verses 8 and 9, we see that the blessing that David receives is not kept to himself, but it's shared. One commentator writes, just as he distances himself from the company of the wicked, in other words, God, don't treat me like you're going to treat the wicked. I don't want to go there. So he distances himself from the company of the wicked, but then there's another company with which he identifies. He identifies himself with God's people. And so God, what you've done for me, would you do for others, for all of us? The welfare of all of God's people for the whole church was his concern. David was really concerned about the common good of his people. He goes on to speak of the Lord being the strength of His people and the saving refuge of His anointed. He's probably thinking about Himself, the anointed ruler and leader, but He's also looking forward, though He probably doesn't understand it yet, He's looking forward to that greater David, that greater prophet, priest, and king to come. And look how the psalm ends. Save your people Bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the first time the Lord as shepherd has been mentioned since Psalm 23. And it's only one of three times in the whole scriptures, in the whole Psalms where the Lord is referred to as shepherd. And what does the shepherd do? Among other things, he carries the sheep. We saw that in Isaiah 46. The Lord carries His people. It's in Isaiah 40. It's in Isaiah 63. Do you think God wants His people to know something? Do you think He carries His people? The lifeless idols that we make, what do we do with them? We carry them. And kids, have you ever been on a trip with a backpack? After a while, does that backpack get heavier and heavier? Yes. Who do you, what do you do? You ask someone to carry it for you. For those of us that create idols, and we all do in one way, form, or another, they are burdens to bear. 
And yet, the true and living God says, I carry you. A speaker at a recent conference I went to said, every other religion involves a burden you carry. Christianity, the true religion, the God-revealed religion, is the one in which the burden is carried by another. So in our prayer, we see a pattern, a model, an example for our prayers. All true, all gloriously true, yet there is more. For you see, Psalm 28 points us to Jesus. Who He is and what He's done. Remember in His post-resurrection appearances, He said to His disciples, we read in Luke 24, 44, Then He said to them, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So how is this psalm, how is Psalm 28 fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus? Well, a couple of ways. One, you've heard it before. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. Jesus sees that He is the answer to David's prayer that God would be their shepherd and carry them forever. Twice in John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He goes on to say, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He goes on to say, after proclaiming himself as the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me. My friends, does Jesus know you? Do you know Him? I am the Good Shepherd. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 28. But then, later in John, on the night of His betrayal, when He's with His disciples in the upper room, what does He tell His disciples? To ask, and you will receive. Until now you have asked nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You see David asking, begging, pleading. And you see God answering, assuring, providing. So let's ask ourselves some questions. Are you calling on the Lord right now in the name of Jesus? Are you calling on the Lord? Are you asking for mercy from the God of justice? Are you staying on the line long enough? Are you letting it ring until He answers? Now let's not end with a series of questions as good as they may be, but rather with a statement, a statement from the Lord Himself. And I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Earlier in our prayer, we used Hebrews 4 to remind us of how we have access to the throne of grace. And I, wanna, I want us to end 
with a few verses from Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23. This is what the author, the unknown author to Hebrews, but who God Himself says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Let me give you a new translation for that last verse. Let us stay on the line letting the phone ring and ring and ring because it will be answered. God is faithful. He delights in hearing His desperate people cry out to Him, plead with Him, knowing that it's only from the Lord Himself that we get the words that lead to eternal life, not only there and then, but here and now. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Psalm 28. Although we don't know the specific occasion that gave rise to this composition, O Lord, we find ourselves in similar situations. So Father, would this really be a model prayer? Would this be an example? Would this be a pattern of coming to You, getting Your attention, making our request, and in Your timing and in Your way, receiving the assurance of Your love and care and provision? Father, we thank You that all of Your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And we thank You That when your people beg mercy, you have given it to us in Jesus who lived and died in our place and on our behalf. We give you thanks and praise for the good shepherd who carries his people. For we pray in his name. Amen.